everybody. Welcome back to Life of Education's podcast. Um, we're here with David Johnson, who is a sports therapist and doctor of osteopathy. Um, and you're working at the IFBM in Dubai. Yeah, in healthcare city. In healthcare city. So um, we asked you here because um, I know you do a lot of teaching with some of the strengths of that's that's been in Dubai recently. But I um, just wanted to have a chat generally about kind of the world of osteopathy and then what you've seen in your time in Dubai. So I know you've been here for quite a while, how you've seen kind of the fitness industry progress. And you've also tried to bring a lot of educators over in the past. Correct. Um, you did some work with Charles Polican. Yes. Um, the late, great Charles Polican. So we can talk about <coughs> that as well. But do you want to just briefly introduce yourself, first of all? Okay. Um, David Johnson. I'm a, I started as a strength coach. Um, before I came to this country um, and then I became a, a sports physical therapist uh, through injuries um, and later went on to uh, get the title of Doctor of Osteopathy um, I've been here roughly 13 years um, I've established different medical practices um, and different businesses here I've um, been an educator um, around the world and different places um, I've even uh, done things like seminars at the Royal College of Surgeons and, and at some sort of prestigious places um, yeah, and I'm currently in clinical practice here in Dubai. What kind of stuff have you been teaching? Um, so it depends who I was with, uh, but a lot of it is strength coach based or fitness based, if you like. Um, so anything from overcoming strength plateaus, which is the last one I did at the Global Strength Summit uh, with Desert Barbell, um, uh, to you know, um, you know hypertrophy to strength training, um, through to using different methods. I have a, a seminar that I teach called AccuMuscle, which is um, taking the very basic modalities of physical therapy and applying them to strength uh, training in order to assess muscle weakness and instantly fix that muscle weakness, uh, as long as it's not an injury. Um, and that you can see people do that quite well. Instantly? Instantly. I love that word. Yeah. Explain. <laughs> well, uh, muscles turn off for different reasons. So mm -hmm. you trick the nervous system. Uh, the nervous system shuts it down. So whether it's um, a Golgi tendon organ or a muscle spindle or any of these things, um, as long as, again, there's no injury involved, you can normally turn this back on and see instant results. So if you've got a rotator cuff uh, that's pretty weak, you can test it. You know, you've got to know how to muscle test very well um, and then interpret those tests and then apply the techniques. Um, and I, you know, when I was refining it, one of the funny stories is a good, good friend of mine has nothing to do with health and fitness or the body whatsoever. He's in London. And I sat in Starbucks trying to find a way that I could teach him to do it. And I put it on the back of a napkin so I could get him within under five minutes to understand the concept. So I could, you can basically teach anyone. And that, that was the key. And then, obviously, you've got to know your anatomy, and we teach the anatomy, mm. and hopefully people come with that background. So how did you teach him in under five minutes if we start a clock? <laughs> uh, that would give everything away, see? Okay, <laughs> that, that's, that's your whole course in five minutes. Whole course in five minutes. Um, so I'm curious, because uh, in kinesiology, there's... The, a very similar practice yep. um, where they muscle test yep. and then they turn things back on. I've been very fortunate enough to have one of those when my muscle, the tummy muscles, my tummy muscles were just not on. Yep. And then you turn them back on. I was yep. like, how did you do that? Yeah, yeah. But I think it's through, uh, it's through manipulation. Is that how you, is your technique the same? So manipulation can mean a, a multitude of things. It can mean, uh, most people think it's the pop that Kairos and Osteos do. That's mm -hmm. one form of manipulation. It's called a high velocity and low amplitude thrust. Um, that's not what we do in the courses, for example. But it, manipulation for us is just anything you can apply or use or use your hands with, basically. Mm -hmm. um, and yes, that's what we do. So you, you, you fight. But the key really is, in in all medicine, the key is diagnosis. And so we talk about pet peeves and, and things like that. And here is one of my pet peeves is that people are treating with modalities 
and not giving it a diagnosis. So people walk into my office, so I've had this, and I've seen you know different physios, chiros, osteos, whatever, many, many times. I say, great, what's your diagnosis? Zero. Okay, so what were they working with? So you're applying a dry needling session, or you're applying a fascial manipulation session, or you're dry, what are you treating? And so when I've been here 13 years, this is what I see as a commonality, and people are selling this as packages. So you can go in, and it's like, I call it the fluffy towel syndrome. You go in, and you get a nice big fluffy towel, and you've got that, you know, it's like a spa day, and you go in and get, oh, I haven't looked after. What, what are you treating? Um, and I see that all the time here. And um, I see it worldwide, but it's very common here because of the fluffy towel syndrome. Um, and so when you go back to it, Again, you know, a form of manipulation is part of a toolbox. So I like to say it doesn't matter what your profession, if you're a physio, an osteo, you know, I've done all these different things. You should be able to go in a toolbox and pick out the tool that's needed for that diagnosis at that time. So explain to me some of the reasons why a particular muscle might not be switched on and then how is it different from when people have injuries? What changes? Uh, I think when somebody has an injury, so what is the injury, first of all? So is it an injury to the joint? The joint. Well, let's let's actually, sorry to interrupt you, let's start with when people are healthy. <laughs> okay. So if you're healthy, it's normally probably just a dysfunction. So something's gone wrong, you've knocked it, you've um, you've strained it a little bit, so it's caused the system to turn off like a like an error on a computer. There's nothing really wrong with a computer, it just needs a reboot. And that's the way I look at it. So the nervous system commands everything. So whether you're strength training or you're doing anything to do with muscles or anything, the nervous system to me is king. And so that would dictate whether or not the muscles are working. So when you warm up, for example, in weight training, are you warming up the cellular activities or the neurological? You should really pay attention to the neurological activity first. And if you can do that, you get a better response. How would you warm up the neurological system? So it's for me, it's, um, you know, people say go and, a typical thing in, in PTs is you go go do a 10-minute warm-up on the bike and then I'll see you. Okay, that's temperature. We can argue that and not. Um, I like to be very, very specific. And I'll say, right, if we're bench pressing today, for example, you're going to warm up on the bench press. You're not going to do more than five or six reps ever from the warm-up. And then we're going to decrease the reps as we add the loads. So your body needs to know two things, the range of motion and the load you're going to lift in order to do for that session, for example. Now, if you're going to run a 10K, you don't warm up the bench press. You go warm up 10K. It's very, very specific to what you're doing. But the nervous system needs to know what's going to happen. So what I see is people go in the gym and they go, oh, I'm going to do a set 10, a set 12. I'm going to spend 10 minutes on the treadmill first. I'm going to do low, you know, a lot of sets at high repetitions to warm up. They've got to, got to warm up. Well, yes, you warm up to raise the core temperature of the muscle. I agree. There's more pliability, better responses. But you've also got to do it systematically. So if you're going to bench from nothing to, a, to 50 kilo dumbbells, you know, you've, got to, you've got a lot of sets to warm up. How are you going to do that without fatigue? And I want the nervous system to be responsible for your activities and not just think about the cellular component which is what we think about carbs we think about you know the lactic acid that's all cellular who's warming up the nervous system who's turning that on that's that's what i'm more concerned in. okay and then if somebody has an injury why would why would the nervous system turn off a muscle it's surely to protect what's going on okay so, so it's feedback. purely protection yeah, yeah and some people can recover from injuries and that injury is completely gone but the nervous system hasn't accepted that so you just got to teach it. It's okay to do it now. And that's part of rehab. Mm. Yeah. yeah, nervous system is an interesting little thing. <laughs> How do they turn your abs back on when you did it? What was the exercise or what was the thing you experienced? I, to be honest with you, I can't remember entirely, but I remember laying down, obviously, on a on a bed. And uh, they made me do in Pilates what you would call like a, um, like a teaser. So you come up using your tummy and then he just pressed down on my knees and down on my torso and I just went <laughs> and uh, 
then I think it was a spinal manipulation um, and I think it was T12 and he adjusted T12, am I right? Okay. And, uh, and um, then I did the same exercise again. So it was a, like a crack manipulation. <laughs> to be technical yeah. <laughs> and uh and and then I did the same exercise two or three times more, and I was a lot stronger, but yeah, yeah, but it's interesting i I think i've I've said this several times on this podcast, so I'm sorry if I'm gonna repeat myself, but I remember p- having a surgery once on my foot, and the surgeon took a video of my foot in the pre-op room, sorry, in the post-op room after I was obviously passed out and he showed my toe having full range of motion. And when I got out of surgery, he's like, look, I fixed it. I can't give you this video, but I'm going to show you. I fixed your foot. There's full range of motion. And when I woke up and I tried to do that again, it didn't, it was stuck again to exactly where it was before. And I was like trying to talk to my toe, like, come on, we fixed you. (laughs) You should be, but no. And I have a feeling that that's entirely the nervous system. So my nervous system's like, "Uh -uh, (laughs) uh-uh, we're not doing that. (laughs) You see that a lot. I've been in a lot of sort of, uh, I've had the fortunate ability to be able to sit back in surgeries and watch surgeries. And um, I I worked with one particular um, partner of mine at the time and a lot of ACL surgeries. So, Post ACL, what you do is, is, is once the surgery is done, they get the knee and they go into full flexion and extension to show that yeah, it's it's fully normal. We call that passive range, right? Yeah, so it's full passive range of motion and it's beautiful. Joint but you works. also have a completely sedated person yes. that is passed out and drugged out to the nines. But that, what, what does that tell you? Your system's turned off, right? Yeah, so, entirely. So from a mechanical point of view, that joint should work. Okay, when you wake up, the nervous system goes, <laughs> "Hello, what did you just do to me?" And so people come out and say, I can't put my weight on it. Obviously, there's pain involved. There's feedback loops there. And then there's, you know, I've, you've done something to me. So surgery to, is a trauma. You're going to cut somebody. You're gonna, it's the body sees it as a trauma. What's going on here? You know, it's a very controlled, very thought, meticulous trauma, but it is a trauma. Yeah, and it's probably a bigger trauma than the initial trauma, I think, sometimes. Yeah, I think it depends on your trauma. But yeah. Trust me. <laughs> sometimes it took me longer to recover from a surgery than it Well, who knows? <laughs> really, yeah. that's speculation, but... Yeah, so, you know, and through the rehab process, you have to teach them that you have full range of motion and that we're going to have to ask your brain and your muscles to work together again. So you trick it. You trick it. And so you basically say, come on, it's time now. How do you trick it? I want to trick my toe. (laughs) (laughs) He's got to keep tricking. He's got to keep doing it. Like I tell people that when... I'm still trying to trick it. (laughs) Yeah, well, are you gymming still? <clears throat> another conversation. Do you want to move on or should <laughs> yeah. we talk about that? Okay. No, let's not talk about that. Because <laughs> um, I talk to people all the time about, look, you've got a hurty knee, you've got a hurty toe, all the scans are, are okay, why are we doing this? Well, we just need to find that sweet spot where your your, your body's able to move before the, the pain kicks in and we're just going to tell the brain, that's okay, that's okay, that's okay. And eventually the brain's going to calm that down. Sometimes you get a really quick response just from movement away out of the pain once you kind of trip the pain switch then it all flares up and gets very sensitive and you have to back off quite a bit but um people are amazed when they have spent so long in clinics like you were talking about with the modalities getting the thing on getting the massage getting the in the, the pads and the the ultrasound none of it works they think they're completely bust up structurally this injury was happened ages ago ages and ages ago like you should be you should be able to, to get going now then tissues healed Let's just get you moving. And it takes 
it doesn't take very long with some people. Some people take ages, but if you that's just tricking the nervous system. That's just trying to coach it into listen. You can move. You just don't go over there with those dumbbells and start lunging with like twenty kilos the way you used it five years ago. Um, but what are, what other ways would you trick it? Like, what do you have any strategies? Uh, Post surgery, I really like um, EMS, so muscle stim using a, a, an electronic stimulator. Um, so a lot of people post surgery, so again, it would take ACOs, which is probably what I have the, the most experience with, probably three, four thousand of those. Um, is you see a lot of muscle wastage, and they've forgotten the brain's kind of forgotten how to use that muscle. Um, and muscle wastage happens almost instantly. It's you went in with a quad, you came out with that one. It's phenomenal how the body just protects the joint, and then you just have to stimulate the muscle and say, "It's okay, we need you to contract." And you've got to make that connection. But what I get people to do while they're having the stim, not just lay back and chill out and have a coffee, is you've got to actively think about contracting out when it contracts too. I need you to go back in with the brain and say, "That's a normal response. That's a normal response. That's a normal response." And I normally end up only doing probably three sessions. You know, I, I'm, I mean, this is a ten, fifteen minute thing. It's no longer than that three times in one week and, and then they can reactivate their quads now it's time to start building them mm-hmm. and that's depending on the injury we go around how that needs to be done uh let me just take you up to the point why do why does the brain why would a quad disappear so quick what's what's in your mind the reason for that safety so why would the tissue get smaller well the atrophy is probably from um the, the nervous system telling the, the the muscle it's no longer needed um I mean, the, the the atrophy is is it's not I mean, it's rapid within a week you see it really, but you tend to see people come out of surgery they're wrapped up, you see them and then as the dressings come off within a week there's quite a, a lot of atrophy there's non usage, so people forget that we are constantly weight bearing so you're constantly walking on your legs you're constantly moving around and now suddenly you're on crutches or your bed rest, and then you've got an injury to the knee so there's no stimulation to it whatsoever, um, and with the with the injury the body says look you know I'm, you're not allowed to use this anymore. Um, that's what it seems like is a big trauma. Let it heal. And it knows. The body's far cleverer than we are. has this innate intelligence, um, in my opinion. Um, and, and I always tell patients, that, look, you know, your body's really, really smart. And there's no drug we can give you that I know of. And we do things with stem cells and stuff like that. But there's no drug I know of that can do what your body can do by itself. Um, as long as we just say it's okay at each stage. And we go we go slowly. Mm. Um, uh, and I think, th- I think I honestly believe that it's just pure protection. And it just shuts down everything, one hundred percent. And you, so you've seen three to four thousand ACL surgeries. What other, what other wild or wacky surgeries have you seen? Oh man! When CrossFit became big here, I started seeing things called posterior shoulder dislocations. You don't really see them. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah. That's so people weird. would do uh, uh, f- uh, kipping, and then they would dislocate the shoulder backwards. So you normally see it anteriorly. Yeah. Um, so you start seeing weird wow. things like that. Yeah, yeah, and you go, "Where did that come from?" And then you got. Um, yeah, things like cellulitis or you know, sort of and things that need antibiotics. Um, you see a few things. You've you got to be able to differential di- diagnose. So that means um, people walk into your clinic and they might have something that presents as a muscular symptom, musculoskeletal symptom, and it's not, so it's disease. I think that's a really important thing. I've seen people come in with you know, rims that people think, oh, it's you know I've got this pain, it's muscular, can you just massage it? And then you end up something a bit more sinister. Um, yeah. Go ahead. I was going to ask you, do you think people are um, are over-prescribing surgery? Like, do you think that people are having too much surgery? So, a lot of my partners have been orthopedic surgeons, and I've mm-hmm. worked with good ones. Um, I can say that I do see a lot of unnecessary things happening. You can say or you can't? Yeah, I can, yeah. You can, yeah. In, in my opinion. I'm True, not a yeah. surgeon, right? So, yeah. for, from a non-surgical point of view... Um, 
I think things like uh, having your chromium shaved is no longer necessary unless it's the main cause of a like a you've got a like a, a type three in it. Mm. but impingement itself can be fixed in five minutes literally so i i don't know what we're looking at you know um now is that in the surgeon's fault probably not you know they go in and they've said go to physio 500 times and do this and, and it's the last resort and yeah. it should always be a last resort definitely be so this is a very simplistic <coughs> idea but i always wonder so we are supposedly living a very sedentary lifestyle in comparison to the rest of human history where we were much more laborious. Yet we're having more surgery from doing nothing um, than ever before. Obviously, we didn't have surgery, you know, pre But is that an identification years. problem, right? So the minute you start monitoring or the minute you have the technologies to have these, is it just the fact that we're finding these things and they can be fixed? Yeah. So is that the stat, right? Yeah, yeah, is that it, or is it there? Actually, this is like a new thing we've managed to to give people a way to fix these things without feeling any pain. So let's do it, as opposed to being if if surgery was the way that it was before, when you used to get strapped to a table and like something put into your mouth, and then they used to just cut you open with no anesthesia. No one would do that. No one. <laughs> Literally, but now because you like your little soft pillow thing now because yeah, 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 you can be put to sleep, you wake up, you feel no pain. Like it's such a lovely experience. <laughs> Let's all have surgery. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I I disagree in a sense that I think that's what technology has allowed us to do, right? So mm-hmm. we've got, come so far. And, uh, it's a double-edged sword, though. <laughs> yeah, I think I think you know that's in the hands of the of the prescribing surgeons to know the patient in front of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and I don't think anybody goes to med school not wanting to help people. You know, I, I think doctors get a bad name mm. and they get bashed a lot. And I really don't like it. I think we're all in the yeah. same medical profession to help each other and help patients. That's what we're there for. Look, I totally agree with you in that perspective. I don't think anybody goes out to do any harm. But I also think that there's probably information about the human body that we haven't even tapped into. And how the human body communicates and how on a really, really, really like just like you were talking about the innate intelligence on a cellular level that we are messing up because we are just cutting everything open, not allowing it to heal itself or not giving it the tools to be able to do that on its own and being very quick to go to a solution that we we know works, so to speak, um, without exploring other options. So that's maybe... That's a double-edged sword there, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, that's politically, ethically and morally a very double-edged sword. If, fine. <laughs> well, it, 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 you know, these are the tools we have today available to us. So if you walk into me as a medical professional and say, you know, I have impingement, you know, and 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 I, and I go, well, I let the body heal itself. You know, we have these other ways of looking at it. You're now we have these systems in place in our society to help protect the patient from malpractice. And so if you're not giving them the, what we now know currently are the best tools that we have available, that becomes their malpractice, right? And that means that you're now liable for. Well, I didn't say just say, oh, let the body heal itself mm. and walk away, but giving it other tools that le- that are less invasive. Like you were saying, you can fix an impingement in five minutes mm. without having surgery, without having to shave. So this kind of, I think, comes back to, mm-hmm. it's nothing to do with the surgeons. The, the surgeons are, I mean, I don't know anything. about. When I walk into an OR, an operating room, I don't know anything. Right? And I think doctors also go into physio's office and the good ones I've worked with, the surgeons go, I, I don't know, this is not my realm. Mm-hmm. This is what you do. And I, I've got very good friends who are very good uh, consultant orthopedics in the United Kingdom, um, top of their game, and they say to me, you know, surgery by itself doesn't fix the problem. You need a great rehab, you need a great surgery, and they need to go together very well in order mm-hmm. for you to have a great outcome. One yeah. without the other, there is no great outcome. We need you as much as you need us. 
right? And we need you to be as uh, specific and educated as we are. Like we, we learn new surgical techniques. We learn new things that go on. We look at new research all the time. So the problem is, I, in my, my opinion, when you go into a physio's office, when's the last time they did a, a course that challenged them? When was the last time they looked at a different point of view? Mm. You know, that kind of education, once you get your, your first degree as a physio, you don't need to really, there's some CPD points, like 10 points a year, right? It's not a large amount. You don't need to have a master's yet. to be competitive. Maybe you, you might want to, but then what do you do? You know, how how do you keep up with things? What, what's happening? Some people are lucky that they have groups or circles that they work in where they do you know uh, research reviews, or um, somebody has new techniques they can bring in and stuff like that. Mm. But I think when when I came here, there's nothing. You know, certainly 13 years ago, there was absolutely nothing. And over the years, it's now much better than it's ever been. There's some great stuff coming in now. Um, and like I said, I've tried to bring people in from the U.S. before and stuff like that. Um, and that proved futile because nobody wanted to pay the money. They're not interested. Right? Um, maybe that model has changed now. I've kind of moved on from that, trying to bring people in. But I think it's still the responsibility of the therapist to be more educated. So if you don't know what's in front of you or you have very limited experience, it's not okay just to plug the ultrasound on, which I see here in all the hospitals. It's amazing. You know? Um, they just plug the ultrasound on, or they put me in wax, or they, you know, they do some very basic things, a little bit of a mass, off you go, or a little bit of a band exercise, off you go. That's not acceptable, right? And but that's the, it's also a business model. So medicine is also a business now, uh, worldwide, not just here. Um, and you see that a lot, which is you know, it, it's very difficult to, I'm use the word play in that model to give the best healthcare that you can give while you have these restrictions of well how, how like from your perspective being in the industry for so long how could you do that how could you have a business and um be giving your patients the best possible results how would you how would you well, do that if you see a lot of the uh, opposite happening here I, I call it the cheat sheet right so you do your exams you have a cheat sheet for me it's you know i don't use insurance um they're gonna hate me for it but i, I don't use them they dictate how much you get paid they dictate, you know, how many modalities you can put in in a certain period of time. So it might be 15 minutes, you get paid for X amount for this modality. It's a very Americanized system, as far as I'm aware, and I don't like it. It dictates what you have to do for a patient. Well, how do you know what I have to do for a patient? Impingement, you've got to do this. And it says, you put this code in, and then you've got to do, you've got 15 minutes. You what do you do? Ultrasound, 15 minutes, then you did massage. 15 minutes, then you did patient education. And then you get paid for that time, and X amount of money, no matter your experiences. So I'm like, well, I'm sorry. We'll do pay and claim, which means that we are on the register. You can, we have a stamp. You come into our place. You can, if your insurance is good, you can claim it back, all that kind of thing, um, which is 95% successful as far as I'm aware. Um, but I don't, and a lot of places I've built before, we've had insurances because of, if you're an, a surgeon, you need insurances. And then the insurances have the rehabilitation with it. And a lot of people can't afford 20 sessions of rehab, for example, plus. Um, and so you need them. But that dictates also how much you get paid. And it dictates how long you can spend with a patient a lot of the time. Um, and then you have to fill those forms. And so I'm very, an, you know, I'm, I'm anti it in a sense that you shouldn't, we shouldn't be, you know, insurance companies shouldn't be dictating what the medical provider needs to do in a particular consult. That's why we go to school. And that's why I've spent my entire life, you know, in education to, to get better at what I do for, for somebody else to come along who's not as qualified as me and tell me mm -hmm. what I need to do. It doesn't make any sense. Um, and I think the patient in front of me is the most important thing. I, I can't emphasize that enough. When a patient sits in front of me, I'm here for you. right? You tell me what's wrong and how I can help you. That's my first thing. How can I help? I'm there to help. I'm not there to make money. You know, I'm not there. That's not on my forefront of my mind. Where it, when you start putting 
every 15 minutes you have to do this you, you, you're just going to wire people up and, and Nick, okay we can see you tomorrow we see you in three days time this is what you do yeah. or acupuncture one person and walk to somebody else and put them on an ultrasound so you can see multiple patients at the same time but this is what it's become because you've got to get paid right and you, if if you set up private practice in other places not necessarily this country but you, you can probably do that very well make a lot of money and be respected and all that kind of stuff um, it's not the way I like to work I kind of see people about half an hour um, and if they need more time I'll, I'll express that and we do more time um, rehab can take you know if you're really into rehabilitation I don't have the facility but we used to have a large facility where we did it you know I'd be with patients anything from you know half an hour to 45 to an hour sometimes depending on the person and what they needed at that time and we would book that in accordingly and you can't necessarily do that in, in these models that, that are produced so you've got to remember that everybody has to make money right so the facility that you're in needs to pay rent whether lights are on or not you need to realize that it's a business and you need to realize that you know if that doesn't exist that service doesn't exist so if we don't get yeah. paid that service doesn't exist i can't practice well like you were saying before i liked how you mentioned about the like medical professionals particularly surgeons have to have a, a good relationship with osteos and physios so that the yes. care can be comprehensive yes. in that regard people understanding that yeah everyone lives through money like we have to it's not a bad thing at all so finding a way to do it ethically yes. so that both spectrums can be um taken care of to a certain degree absolutely i think i think it's a good way to look at it because a lot of people do slam the surgeons like yeah. pretty quick a lot of people do say the surgeons rubbish the surgeons this and there is some bad surgeons. I had one guy who had his angles done wrong for his... I mean, I don't know. I can't critique this. One guy said a bunch of other doctors told him that his angles were done wrong for his ACL re- replacement. That's why it was still going wrong. That's way above my pay grade. I don't know. We just got on with it. Mm. But there's people who... I think bedside manner is a quick way to lose oh, a patient's um, trust and... Uh, whatever, whatever else you want to call it. Like. You've seen that. You've seen that stat in in the US. They had this thing out, and I don't know where it's from, but I've seen it m- multiple times. Is you get a, a a doctor who is precise, got a correct diagnosis, everything, but his bedside manner is not very good. Then you get the family doctor who's who hasn't got the right diagnosis, been mistreated, uh, mistreating, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, but a fantastic bedside manner knows all the family. Who's likely to get sued? It is always the guy with or the girl with the poor bedside manner. Mm. Yeah, and this is a stat yeah. from the US. It's very, very true. So the bedside manner is like, it's amazingly important to yeah. make that rapport with a patient. Mm. I think that's where some surgeons might fall down. Again, I don't know all well, surgeons. There's that I thing that surgeons <laughs> tend to, you know, they're very good in the OR and are very good in the in the clinical room. So yeah. it's, it's, if yeah. y- y- it's also part of the job, I think, you know. Yeah. Look, I, from being down this avenue entirely, I think that a huge portion of this lays with the individual who is being operated on not the surgeon itself i think it's you and it's your responsibility to make your own mind how do i say this properly you can either choose to heal or you can choose not to heal and if you take if you get the right surgeon or whoever it is and you follow everything that they say because loads of people go to physios and the physios give them exercises and no one ever does them we all know that um and follow all of those processes in addition to your own mind and your own 
how you perceive your own healing, then I I think that the outcomes can be favorable. Unfortunately, I don't I don't think people do all of those things, and no, I, I think agree. I think the problem rests with the individual entirely, and not so much with the surgeon. Like it's up to you. Like yes, there are extreme circumstances where surgeons are shit and they botch jobs up and they don't do a good job, or where you have someone who has bad bedside manner. But that's is that really is that really it? Like. I think it's you. Like yeah, it I'm is, responsible. It definitely is, but there's that idea that you'd kind of touched on. People just show up and expect. Okay, I've got options. I take this back surgery, which is going to fix my disc. It's going to chop off the bit that's pressing on the on the spine. My pain will all be gone in a couple of weeks, and I'll be able to walk. Or we go through a year of rehab, and I fix my mobility and my core, and I did it, and I go through this. Whoa, that's a really long list of things I have to do. Because it's a lot of work. Yeah, that's the problem. Exactly. And it's a lot of work. They want to go. They want to go skiing with their kids after in in the springtime. Do you know where they want to do something? So why don't I just get the surgery now? And that's where people get misdirected because they're, they're so I can get a surgeon and then do nothing. And when things go wrong, I can blame the surgeon because they're shit. It's not me. It's like I could never possibly do anything wrong. Do you understand? I'm being yeah. sarcastic. No, no, just I'm on the people. same. I'm on the same track as you. Like this is, but, but I think it's. I think it's not just as easy as people are lazy. I think people might be lazy, but they ex- their expectations are shifted. Oh, look, the surgeon's saying, listen, this is what I do. I know all about it. If you want that disc fixed, I can do it for you. Bish, bash, bosh. And then, like you said, precise. Boom, 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 boom. Okay, next. Maybe, maybe, sorry. This is meant to be about you and I'm just rattling on. Um, maybe though it's it's how we as a society perceive surgery itself. Maybe it needs to be viewed differently. Like I'm going to assist you with your injury, but you got to do half the work yeah. here. So I'm going to help this portion. Somebody else is going to help this portion. And then that 50%, that's you. Like that's so, on you. So you ever see, you know, my mom had a massive back surgery recently in the UK and very successful, touch wood and all that. Um but my, like my mother's generation, doctors were king. They were no matter what they said. It was that's you know, true. It, it, it was this thing, and then even as a generation, my generation, let alone you know sort of the generation after me, we were now allowed to question everything, right? Um, and so in our generation, I'm, I'm 40, so our generation is like 40. Yeah, thanks for that. <laughs> we, um, you look way that. older. <laughs> <I'm joking. laughs> that's me leaving the door. <laughs> we, um, See, this is what happened to memory loss. So then the the right to question things. And then you go back and you go, now I question everyone. So um, my mother's surgery was a classic. The surgeon had never been asked a question in all his practice. had never come out and met a patient's family pre-surgery. And it obviously before when they did the appointment and everything. So I went in and I said, you know, um, this is me. I need to meet the surgeon. And the way I approached the nurses, the way I approached the desk, you know, um, it was in, in a London hospital, so not a great hospital in terms of the rapport that the people give you. Um, and then we waited around, and the surgeon came out, and I went and sat in with the surgeon, and I spoke to them, on obviously on a medical level. Um, and my sister was there with me, and he, very, 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 very good. He came out, and the receptionist said to me, "That's the first time in two years that he's ever come out." So in my head, I was like, "A, is that because of him, or is it B, because nobody requests it?" What did she mean? That's the first time he's ever come out. He's ever come out to speak to a patient's relative, especially on the day of surgery. Oh, okay. Right? Yeah. Um, which to me in, in this country is normal. You see the surgeons come out and say, good morning, you know, all mm. that kind of stuff. Now, a month before that, my best friend had, um, his mother had a massive surgery. And in the morning, everybody came and saw it. We saw the surgeon. We saw the anesthetist. We saw the surgeon's assistant, you know. Um, and we saw everyone. But in this hospital, it wasn't done. So, but is it because 
nobody asked? Or is it because of the nature of the surgery? There is no orthopedics. Um, I don't know. But I know that, again, ownership, you do have the right to ask as many questions mm-hmm. as you want. And I think Absolutely. I find a lot, of, a lot of doctors don't like being questioned. Yeah. I, I also found that a lot here. So I, I sit on, I think, yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you entirely. I know there was, um, there was a time here where one of the surgeons to my pelvis wanted to fuse my pubic symphysis mm-hmm. um, on the right and the left side and plate it. And I looked at him and I was like, no. (laughs) And he was so shocked. Like, it's like I just beaten him with a stick. Um, So shocked. He couldn't believe that I said no. And then he was like, no. He said no to me. And I was like, what? No. Like, you're not saying no to me. I just said, no, we're not doing this. Um, Anyway, he came back several times to try and convince me because I was wrong, apparently. And... I may, I probably was entirely wrong, and I can tell you now he was probably right. Um, but my instinct at the time was no, and I was shocked. Well, surgery, no one said no. Surgery needs informed consent, right? Mm. Informed means that you are completely informed about the surgery's risks, procedures, and what can and cannot go wrong with it. Um, and that's from you know, walking into the hospital to going down to the OR to risk of infection, just sitting in an OR, to coming out on the post complications that you can have post surgery. And if you're not informed of those things, that's you know malpractice. You need to be. And then you, in order for you to have that information, then you can make a decision. Do I think it's worth the risk-benefit ratio? Um, and people don't do that. They go, I'm in pain. I'm just going to go in. Yes, doc, great, thanks very much. No understanding of what's going on. So a lot of people come into my, my practice and I go, what did you have done? Oh, I don't know. Yeah. Just, uh, it said me shave something. I'm like, okay, that's an informed decision, right? What yeah. did he shave? My shoulder. What part of the shoulder did he shave? Like, I'm not expecting you to give me an anatomical landmark and, and talk about it, mm. but I would like you to say, oh, the chromium thingy, that's fine. You've got a location. You can point yeah. to it. You know what's going on. You know what was meant to happen. 95%, 99% of my patients yeah, come in have no clue. 95, yeah. Yeah. I'm being you know, diplomatic, I guess, but no, most people come in and have absolutely no clue. Yeah. You know, oh, he, he went in with my knee and he cleaned this. And I'm like, he cleaned what? Cleaned. What yeah. did he use a bit? They talk like what did he do? You know? that on it. <laughs> what does that mean? Like, yeah. And I have to ask always for the surgical notes. I go, mm. well, what did he do? I don't know. Well, you need to go back and ask if it's okay. You get consent that I can see the surgical notes because I need to know what happened or what you did, right? And this is a commonality thing. It's very common in, in here. Is that a me. difficult process? Um, it takes a little bit. No, but all patients should be able to, by law, get their surgical notes. Yeah. It may be a bit of getting on the phone and a bit of hounding, but they can yeah. get them for sure. Yeah. And they should email them to you and. Amazing. Yeah. Mm. You yeah, yours. I know. You just gave me an idea. No, you should, like, you should, oh. be, you should have, be, have all, in, in, in all your medical records. Around well, you. like I'm a little bit nosy in that regard. I looked up all of the surgeries, read all the clinical studies, well, a huge majority to each of them, and then I watched them on YouTube. <laughs> so it is an interesting fact. The amount of patients that I've seen can stay awake in surgeries, right? So even if you have your ACL down, they can put a nerve block and you can stay awake. Mm-hmm. And the amount of people that basically sleep in surgery. And what I've seen, just from my own clinical experience, this is not a research, my own clinical experience, those that are awake have poor rehabilitation. Really? Yeah. Poor? It's poor. It's yeah. almost the shock and trauma of going through a surgery. Let me tell you, when I watched my foot surgery on YouTube, my foot started hurting immediately. Did you watch your own? or a No, no, no. I watched, I watched the same procedure. Oh. It was like a YouTube description of what they do. I watched the whole thing, and my foot was killing me. I couldn't walk. It was, it's, it's bad. You should never watch. Never, ever, ever watch. I, I think, you know, 
if you haven't done um, cadaver dissections, if you haven't been to a medical school, for example, I mean, first-year med school students, I mean, the first dissection you go into, you see people pass out, right? And there's no blood, really. So let alone if you see operations, you know, right? and you, like I said, I've seen quite a few. That's that's quite traumatic for a lot of people. Seeing blood for some people is enough to make them feel queasy yeah. and want to pass out, right? Or having... Um, you know, massage, very painful. Oh, I don't like that. So you can imagine the level of going through watching your own surgery as it's happening and feeling those things. You know, obviously there's a nerve block, but you can still feel somebody's hammering into bone, for example, or screwing into bone. You can feel that, right? Yeah. So th- that's a trauma. I've never had a surgery, so I don't know. Do you know, once on the operating table, I went into, so normally they put you in the anesthesia room, you pass out, then they do the surgery. And one day they took me straight into the surgical room and you see those huge orb lights. And I was looking at them. I was like, we're out in space. They moved me to another bed. They start doing everything around me. And I was like, guys, I'm still awake. (laughs) I'm awake. Someone passed me out. I turned around and I saw all of the instruments and I freaked out <laughs> like my it was like a saw there was yeah. a saw in front of me i started my heart just shot through the roof and to the point when one of the guys like i started beeping on the monitors the guy came he held my hand he's like okay we'll put you to sleep now i was like why are you letting me see all of this it was it was not not good different, different patients respond very differently to different scenarios so i don't the surgeons do it either like one, one of, no, not to not to cut you off sorry but one of my friends is, is applying for a job to be the when the operation happens he's there doing the, the utensils selling selling the kit selling the equipment i don't really understand it but it's he's doing cranial surgeries so part of the interview process is he has to go and in, into a surgery and watch one as a bystander to make sure that he doesn't pass out he doesn't go crazy he doesn't faint because if he does then he's not he doesn't get the job and that's something that you can't fake <laughs> no, not really. But <laughs> you get right. you yeah. get used to it for sure. Like just like you were talking about the cadaver scenario, the first time I went into a scenario like that at university, it was like everyone was all the girls. We were all like, <laughs> like squealing, and and the smell, and yeah, then you see this body, smell, yeah. and you see it's interesting because at first they give you arbitrary body parts that have been like, like, di- well, I was going to say. Uh, removed from the whole body but then when you start going to anatomy of the head and neck you start to see faces and yeah, facial features yeah, yeah. Eyebrows and you and see hair yeah. and you get used to it you get used to the smell you get used to everything you That's come out yeah you get exposure, used to it right? yeah. Yeah. So the more you're exposed to these things the more you you, you harden to those experiences which is okay for you with 14 surgeries but yeah. for me who's going in for a, a knee thing and I don't want to do that. Put me asleep. Let me put me out. Tell me what to do when I wake up. I always wonder though, like how strong these drugs are. It's ether. Is it still ether? I I have no clue. Yeah, that that they give to you. Like that's something. It's got to be so potent for you to be paralyzed and then not feel any pain. In addition, it's a cocktail, right? Yeah, a large cocktail. Yeah, it's it's three main components. There's a hypnotic, uh, a really really strong pain medication, and then something that paralyzes your whole body. And it's together. But one of the anesthesiologists was kind enough to explain this to me <laughs> as he was about to knock me out. Yeah. Um, yeah, but how potent? How potent that must be? Yeah, I don't know. Like surgery for some people is, I think, the right option to get it done but it, it's hard to know when people have to make those decisions do you take surgery or do you go down the rehab route just going back to the original point I think people are 
they want a quick fix because they have a whole other life to continue. Do you know they haven't got time to just sit around and spend the time getting fifty, sixty. I mean, it's strange how people are happy to do the ACL one, and that's the longest rehab. It's it's, it's a long. People don't realize. People say, "Oh, you know, three months you'd be running around." I'm sorry, I've never seen it. Rubbish. Yeah, absolutely rubbish. Can you guys explain why it's so long? Why? Why is well, that rehab the, the, particularly the, the, long? You've got the tendon has to change to a ligament first of all, the collagen, but also the position of it is it's so deep in the joint it's not got a great blood supply. That's my rudimentary. Yeah, so they drill a big hole in your in in, in your bones, right, to attach the the sort of normally a lot of time they take a tendon graft and it can be from the patella or the hamstrings, and then they they put that in place of where the ACL used to be. Yeah, so you take away the OCA, old ACL. Did they used to? Did they used to take it from the Achilles? Uh, not no? to my knowledge, no. Okay. It's normally a hamstring crusidus graft or a um, okay. patella tendon graft, or you get it from a cadaver. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, the <coughs> cadaver Achilles, though. No, I'm j- going to stop talking. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and then, you know, they, they drill a hole, which is where you're talking about the angles before. It's got to be the right angles and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then they attach the, the new tendon to become... And they drill it into the knee? Yeah, so into the thigh bone and mm-hmm. the lower leg bone, the tibia and the femur. Um at a certain angle and then they attach those and then when you have an ACL I've never seen just an ACL you normally get a bit of meniscus there's cartilage damage maybe there's a, a bone bruise we call it <coughs> there's other things they need to do inside the knee um, and they repair those or, or clean those up and then they wash it out um, test it and then they stitch it up um, and normally it's keyhole we call it keyhole or arthroscopic surgery um, and like my knee you're left with two little marks you've had it done have you? Uh, I had a complex detached meniscal repair my ACL was fifty uh, percent intact, so I left it alone. Okay, um, but that took uh, that took a full year to fully recover from. Yeah. Say what it was again: a complex what? Detached meniscus repair. So basically, part of the meniscus breaks off and is like floating around and gets stuck between the bones. So my knee got stuck at ninety degrees uh, in a jujitsu. Uh, oh, is that how you did it? Uh, I, I mean, I've been training for years, so I think I had lots of tears in them, to be honest. Um, and that was the icing on the cake one day. Um, and it got stuck at 90 degrees and then uh, I went to hospital and there's a technique we use in orthopedics to kind of force it straight they give me a massive painkiller and then we forced it straight and that was an experience and then I had an MRI which you have to do and then you could see what was happening and three days after that I was in surgery uh, because you can't bend your knee basically yeah that was a year and that, uh, so the surgery obviously was very quick it was about 45 minutes 40 minutes um, but recovery because of what they did they put the meniscus a bit back kind of stitched it in and those stitches need to take place you can't load you can't put weight on your leg so that and you can't bend it too much either so there are only so many degrees you can bend it every week so it took me quite a while to get full flexion um even though i would work at it every day every day i'd put the electrostim on it i'd sit there at night time and there's on one of my uh, instagrams is a very old one just giving it a good blast of electrotherapy um and i would bend it as much as i could even if it was a few degrees you know keep me keep it moving keep your toes wiggling um, have it iced and all that kind of stuff. I was very meticulous about it. Mm-hmm. Um, good surgeon, um, and it, you know. But to f- I mean, I was walking about about four months, three months, four months. I was good, but I couldn't do. I couldn't fully f- bend it, uh, fully flex, and I couldn't do jumping and stuff for about a year. It took me to feel good, to feel good. Now with ACLs, I see the same thing. So people can do things at three months, and you know, walking around and all that stuff. Normal, normally day daily living activities. But the minute you want to start doing jumping, twisting, and pivoting sports, yeah, it takes a lot longer. And there's a lot of research to suggest mm-hmm. the graft doesn't really take; it takes up to a year for it to mature. Yeah. Um, and then we see, you know, basically, those grafts can break 
if there's too much pressure on them too early. Um, but, you know, we, I see people doing, you know, kind of crazy physio rehab plyometrics at four or five months. And I'm, I'm not convinced that that's a good thing to do for the general pop. Mm-hmm. Right? Now, for a, a, an elite footballer, it's not my call. Yeah. You know, and I'm sure they're a different breed in terms of what they're able to do anyway. And that's why they are elite. Um, but when you apply that elite model to a general population, I think you're in for trouble. Yeah. And through my experience, no, I see massive weaknesses for a long mm-hmm. period of time after. Yeah, I, that was my experience as well. I, after I left hospital, I was given a three-month, like, you could not work for three months. And it really took me a good two years to be able to do normal daily activities. And then the other stuff I'm still working on. It Like, I think recovery takes a lot longer than people think. Yeah. Um, a lot longer. And I think because we don't realize how long it takes, we can jump to many other conclusions people say oh you're going to be fine in three months but it really does take a lot longer yeah it does and again nature of the surgery the depth of the surgery some things are pretty quick to bounce back from a lot of things aren't mm. um, and ACLs for example are not you know people go oh it's a minor don't worry about it it's a minor surgery it's not it's a big surgery on the body um, in, in terms of orthopedics right so when you replace an ACL there's a lot that goes on and, and people need to realise that it takes a while to come back from that there was a guy, when I worked at the military, there was a guy who, uh, firstly, there was a guy who had his, who had a below knee amputation, um, lying prone position, switched, moved his leg, tipped a landmine, blew his, his foot and his shin off, okay? He went down one medical route. Another, his actual, his cousin uh, was near an explosion, got embedded with a lot of shrapnel. One piece of shrapnel, they took out, so in Camp Bastion in Afghanistan, they removed most of the bits that they could. And they said, look, there's a very large piece about the size of your thumbnail still in your hip bone. We're not going to touch that because to get that will cause you much more problems. So in Camp Bastion, before he was evacuated back to England, he uh, he could move around very, very limited, but he could walk around by himself, kind of hopping around the ward. Landed in, I think it's Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Birmingham, which is the military one. They said, we'll, we'll be able to get that out put him through the surgery, couldn't get it out, caused so much trauma with the actual surgical process that the guy who was who had the baloney amputation was back on camp, running around on crutches with the prosthetic, playing football with the rest of the unit before that guy could even get off. He, could, he couldn't even walk properly because he couldn't, he had almost zero hip extension. So his, his walk was super limited. He was absolutely furious and his rehab, was just almost non-existent because you couldn't do anything he went through a huge process and that's just down to the, the damage that the surgery caused um, i mean I'm, yeah i don't know anything about the case but uh, yeah, yeah i mean again it's informed consent right mm. so i don't know what it's like in the military for that but uh he's also a very young guy he was 18 or 19 you know because that's the only thing actually i wanted to talk about to you when you're saying when the when the, the, the patients come out from the surgeons and they say oh yeah i've got this or i've got that and you don't really know I, I really try and ram this home with people. If you don't understand what he's saying, write it down. Because you're not necessarily always needed to understand it, but you need to take that information to somebody else who does understand it. I think the surgeon needs to back off a bit and use a bit of um, layman's terminology. Um, so if you come into me, I'm not going to say you have a complex detached meniscal repair, we need you've got 50% ACL tear, the MCL partially torn, we're going to do this, this, and this procedure. I mean, huh? Yeah. Right? Mm. I mean, imagine going into your account and getting to say, look at me, go, where's my money? Yeah. Like what? You know, it doesn't make any sense. So you have to say, listen, and let's draw a picture. This is what it looks like. That's yeah. why I have these pictures on my wall. This is what it looks like. This is what's torn. Yeah. This is floating around. All we're going to do is put it back, put some stitches in it. But that means that you can't put weight on it because look, 
oh yeah, right, it clicks. And just go through that step-by-step -step process so that you understand it. Right? Yeah. And I do that with people who have had surgeries. I go, this is what's happened. This is what they've done. And then this is the process. And this is normally how long it takes an average, aver on average. Now it could be less, it could be longer, I don't know. Are you okay with this? Do you want to do this? Are we going this way? But that layman's terms is a part of your bedside manner. Mm -hmm. And for me, it's extremely important. Is it, I mean, again, you know, my mum went into hospital, no real clue of what she's doing. Yeah. So I spoke to surgeons, and now I obviously I got the terminology. I said, "What are you doing?" And he explained it exactly to me, like I was his regist senior registrar, and was just like, "This is what we're gonna do." This is what we're gonna do. I said, "Great, thank you." My sister's like, "Huh?" Yeah. I went out, and I said, "This is what we're gonna do." It's very simple, but she should be fine. I also think that when they do go into layman's terms, the people get it in the room, but as soon as you walk outside the door, if you're to try and recall it, they can't remember. Yeah, so again, I, I, it, I, I sometimes I ask, I take a paper and say, please, you want to write this down? Yeah. Or I think if you really, f I have a whiteboard a lot of time in the rooms that I practice, and so I use I use that as a as a form of, I think people are very visual a lot yeah. of the time. And then you can picture it, and I go, you know, you may not know, this is called the meniscus. Look, this is where it is, and, then, and I show me in the knee. It's that little bit of cartilage in there, between the bones, like acts like a washer. Mm -hmm. Oh, right, yeah. And this is what we do, and this is what it looks like alright two moon crescent and then I forget that it's like a moon right yeah what is it like a moon you get into repeat <laughs> like, honestly yeah. you go through that no I, agree. I totally understand because I think some people as well just smile and nod because they want to they want to kind of placate you and yeah. like I do get you I get you maybe they, maybe they do at the time but when they walk out it's like what well, people coming to me saying the doctor said I have a disc <laughs> I hope so I'm like I know <laughs> I, I need a bit more like just it's not your fault but we, yeah. we have to figure something else out here yeah, I get that all That's the time. That's really your pet peeve, isn't it? I hear you say that so much. <laughs> it's, 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 I don't know. I mean, yeah, I do. If people don't know anatomy, they're not going to know. Exactly. I totally agree with that. And I'm, I'm on their side, but it's like, oh, you've just, you put all this hope into me to trying to help you. And I don't even know what we're starting with. Like, What's the diagnosis, right? Yeah. I don't know what, where we are here. We need to, we need to just shoot in the dark a little bit now for a few minutes and see what works or what doesn't work and then build a picture. And then I need to get in touch with your physio or, or whoever it was mm. because we're just going to waste a lot of time and a lot of money. Yeah, for sure. Um, Dave, where can people get a hold of you or follow your stuff online? Is there anywhere where they can uh, look you up? Uh, at, uh, clinically, I'm at the IFBM Building 72 in Healthcare City. Um, I'm on Instagram, but it's uh, more of a private one. That's sure. DMJDXB. Um, and there's all kinds of stuff on there. At the moment, I'm doing this coding challenge. Which yeah, I've been watching yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. I've been keeping an eye on that. 100 days of code. I'm very interested to check that. We'll talk about this after. Yeah. Um, is there a website where people could check out? Uh, no, not, not at the moment. I'm just a clinical practitioner mainly. Basically. Okay. Yeah. So if you want to, you, you can go on the Instagram, um, and my number's on there also. Um, again, it's ifbm.ae, um, I think. Um, and I'm available at the clinic. Cool. Amazing. Yeah. Thank, Thank you, you so much for Thank you for having me. Um, hopefully have you on again sometime to talk about some of that like, education stuff that you're doing. Absolutely. We'll see you again soon, guys. Thanks a lot. Bye. Thank you.